0: Plant the Rain and Grow Abundance Brad Lancaster's award-winning book series, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, will show you how. His books are the go-to guides for conceptualizing, designing, and implementing water harvesting systems for your home, landscape, and community. Their grounding and dynamically integrated strategies will teach you new ways of seeing and maximizing your site's potential. By harvesting and enhancing free, on-site resources from water to sun, wind, shade, soil fertility, and beyond. Highly illustrated and full of case studies and stories of people successfully welcoming rain and more into their lives and landscapes, these books invite, inspire, and guide you to do the same. More info at HarvestingRainwater.com This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to Episode 1730. Teaching with Games, Food Forest Card Game. My guest today is Carl Treen, the creator of Food Forest Card Game, a deck of cards designed to teach the needs, yields, and connections within a food forest and nature. This allows players to then take what they learn by playing the game and apply it to their gardens and the world around them, all while cooperating, having fun, and in some ways subversively learning a message about how to care for Earth. During the discussion, we also share our own experiences of warm memories with our friends and families playing games, both as children and adults, and how we can use games in the classroom. On this latter point, I give a quick overview of one of my favorite permaculture design course games, Design Island. As Carl and I continue, he shares how he lives his ethics by making inexpensive options available for teachers, giving back to his local community, and offsets the impacts of the production of these cards through his interest in reforestation. Enjoy this conversation with Carl, and I'll join you afterwards with some thoughts and a short follow-up to these ideas with Jason Gadesky. Then, Carl, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to create the Food Forest card game, and we'll take the conversation from there.
1: Sure. My background before... Permaculture is at least uh, my background as a, a person who's interested in gardening was was really just uh, originally with my dad. We would plant trees in the yard, and we had to, we had about ten acres in New Hampshire when I was growing up, and we would you know we planted fruit trees uh, around, but we didn't have there wasn't much science to it. We would we would plant them, and some would survive, and some wouldn't, and, and we didn't really know what we we're doing, but we were very enthusiastic. I always as a kid. Growing up on, you know, on, on 10 acres and sort of watching as it turned from farmland into forest, I always thought, wouldn't it wouldn't be awesome if we had enough knowledge, uh, enough resources to guide this reforestation so that every plant was useful to us, everything that was growing had food. And, you know, the whole concept of a, a forest of food really, I think for me, started as a, as a child. So fast forward maybe 35 years or so, I was in my late 30s, early 40s, and uh, and one day I just Googled the uh, the phrase "forest of food," and when I did that, I found that this is actually a thing, and that was really my introduction to to permaculture because you know of course that's you know the whole regenerative agriculture scene is uh, is. Somewhere dominated by that uh, that philosophy, and so I I went ahead and and got my PDC uh, and started you know, thinking more in uh, in terms of design, in terms of uh, because you know that's really I think most people who who've have, who have been reading enough about permaculture realize that it's it's a design strategy and it's you know it's a philosophy and that takes design, and in the case of agriculture, you know, applies it. And so, professionally, I have been a a computer programmer for some time, and so the notion of sort of logically fitting things together um, was something that was interesting to me. And so companion planting, fitting plants together so that they work together in a system, that was really, really interesting to me, and that, that I think, is the, sort of the, the, the main concept behind this food forest card game is companion planting, putting things together in ways that they could potentially work better than just planting you know, one plant at a time at random. So I took this, this notion of permaculture and actually brought it into my son's classroom when he was in first grade, and that was about four years ago. And I started working with the kids on, um, on gardening projects, and now we've got a, a burgeoning food forest outside of his school that we've been working on for the past three or four years. And in doing so, I was looking for teaching tools for the kids, and I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be great if there were a game where you could sort of make these connections in the classroom, uh, these connections between plants, and demonstrate for the kids in a, in a fun way how things kind of hook together, like how a climbing plant hooks onto a uh, a tree, or a nitrogen fixer can help out a um, a tree that is a, a or a plant that is a heavy uh, heavy nitrogen consumer, or uh, or just you know how pollinators uh, work better as a team. You know you've got more pollinators and you will attract more, uh, poll- you've got more pollinator attractors, and you will attract more pollinators. So anyway, it, you know, all of these notions, kind of putting them together, it seemed to me that I could put them on a, a set of cards and kind of, you know, show the kids how these how these cards would connect, and then and then we could take it out into the garden and see if we could make some of these connections in real life. So it sort of started out as a, you know, as a project for me just with this one classroom, and as I put it together, I realized that what I actually had was a whole series of, uh, of cards that could be made into you know, one game and then potentially many games where the whole basis of these games is, is connections. And if you take a, you know, a regular deck of cards, you see that it's all based on connections. The, the suits all help to connect cards, the numbers in sequence or in pairs or, or you know, sets all connect the cards and, and so you can do similar things with the uh, the food forest card game you know that's the connection i guess with uh, with the educational taking from from the beginning to to almost where i am now
0: and it's one of the things about the cards is that they're very rich with the amount of information that you have on them and the way that you can make connections between the different ideas because you have the four cardinal directions you have the sun which in some cases is full sun partial or shade and then you've also included this idea of the different inputs and outputs on each card between food, water, pollinators, nitrogen and ground cover, as well as both trellises, and a very open concept of infinity for all of those other yields or spaces that a plant structure or other element might provide within a system. What was the process like of developing these choices and deciding to include the inputs, and outputs, the things that something needs or provides in the cards.
1: Now, that was, yeah, I think the, the whole thing started with the concept of inputs and outputs. I think partly, like I said, I've got this background as, as a programmer, and, you know, as a programmer, you're, you're creating programs that take inputs and outputs. You know, you've got uh, somebody puts in some information, and you're supposed to give them that information you know, a little bit different, um, but, uh, or modified, or you're supposed to connect two things. You know, that's really the sum of, sum of programming. So I saw each plant or other item that you would find, you know, potentially in a food forest as an element that could be connected through these inputs and outputs. So that's, that was what I started with as a concept. Then I started thinking, well, gee, how are other ways that, you know, that plants influence each other? And, you know, one is that one might cast shade on another, and therefore I need sort of the cardinal directions um, because if you put a tree on the south side of your lawn, you might be casting shade over the rest of your food forest. Or if your house happens to be you know to the south of of where you're trying to plant, um, you'll have to think about that carefully when you go and you know plant things. You may need shade tolerant plants. And so all of these other ideas sort of sprung up around it. But initially, I had so many different ways in which things connected. My first version of these cards that I played with the kids—it was—it was chaotic. There were so many little icons that kids could use to connect that um, it became very confusing. And so I sort of had to use different sections of the cards to express different ideas. You'll notice even at the bottom of the cards, you've got basically the layering of you know where where an item might occur in, in a layered forest situation. So you've got the plants that are under the ground, then you've got the ground covers, then you've got the, um, the low herbaceous plants, you've got your bushes, your trees, the, the highest of the trees forms the overstory. And so that's, that's expressed on the cards, too. What I have been doing with the cards is basically brainstorming different games that play with some of these features, sometimes many of them, you know, incorporating them into games. And the more the more ways in which you use the cards, the more complex the games get. But you can use them simply, you know, for younger kids as, a, you know, as for matching games. So it, it really, my hope with these cards is that they are able to be used by all ages I, and I know I've seen them used by all ages. I, you know, I have people who use them with like, kindergarten kids, and they play some very simple, simple games. But then I also have you know, people who are more interested in gaming and you know, who are grown-ups and who are playing some fairly con- complex games you know, involving building your homestead and being next to uh, neighboring homesteads and how that affects your layout of cards. So it can get very complex.
0: It's one of the things that I liked about it is because I am a longtime gamer. I think this year is, oh, almost 30 years that I've been a gamer. I mean, and that's just like tabletop games with my friends. It doesn't include card games and things that I played with my family because we played all kinds of card games as well. It's just something I've done for ages. And after I received a set of the cards, I sat down with my parenting partner and she and I played through the two basic games that you provided both the solitaire though we did work together on that, where we're kind of like building out a homestead between the different zones and things. And we found that to be really interesting as we're trying to pull and match cards and make sure that we have everything organized so that the right zones are connected to each other, that nothing's shaded out, and also to meet the needs and yields. And then at the same time, we then went through and played the needs and yields matching game. And that got really interesting as we're trying to figure out what one thing needs and what another one gives and as you know we're flipping over a card we're both looking at what we have and we're looking at what's out and trying to get through and it was kind of got fun and frantic as we were cooperatively playing through the game with each other you know we weren't taking matches that we already had to try to deny the other person as you say the level of complexity that's available is pretty impressive and it ties, though, back to what I like as a gamer, is I very rarely like something that is just a single-use item. So I have a bag full of gaming supplies that have not only my Dyson things in it, but I also have all kinds of tokens and and other items that I can use in multiple different ways within a game. And one of my favorite role-playing games uses a set of tarot cards to play through because of the different symbols that are on it and those connections between the different suits and i look at something like what you have in your deck and not to pull it to a role-playing game necessarily but the way that just i as a gamer and playing those first couple of games that you provided looking at like the different layers that you have on the cards that i could be dealing out cards and then stacking them up to show like you know one potential guild within a food forest going from those tubers beneath the ground all the way up to the upper canopy and it's actually been one of my favorite forms of design is random assemblage i think it was rosemary morrow who presented that in her earth users teacher's guide but that idea of you know putting all these different elements that i want to put in the system on like three by five cards shuffling them together and then just dealing them out and seeing what i can assemble And here you have a set of cards that are already ready to go with many of the very common North American elements already on them.
1: I also add in two cards there that you can use to add your own plants to the system. And in the printouts that I have online, I may not actually provide this, but I have provided to people just printouts of blank cards so they can can use that in much the way that you're talking about. So if somebody is in a in a particular climate that isn't covered as well by my set of cards, they can just make cards that have the the plants that that they want to represent and play like that. So I I wanted to leave a lot of things open ended, like you say, and I I, I have to say I, I am having you know obviously uh, having having played some games myself. My son and I have uh, recently gotten into Dungeons and Dragons and. And, uh, and he's very excited about uh, Magic the Gathering at this point. And I enjoy that, that kind of thing, too. And, you know, I, won't, I don't feel like I took my inspiration from those games, per se. But in the back of my mind was always something, like you're talking about, that, you know, somebody could take this and use it open-endedly to do just what you're talking about. I use it too, and it's funny because when I'm at this point, I'm thinking about a design for a new yard because we're going to be moving soon. And you know, just being able to take these things and spread them out on the floor and say, "Okay, here's some options. How would I, you know, do this in this situation?" it, it still gives me inspiration. One of my friends uh, is a mathematician at Brown University, and she um, she took a look at the cards, and and her expression for describing the the combination was that. that It's a combinatorial explosion. The the number of combinations you can make with these cards is virtually limitless, above billions of combinations once you get going with, uh, with moving them around and trying different things. So it gives you a lot of options.
0: And you say that you've played some games and things and have a background as a programmer, but you're also working with your son's school. From going through your permaculture experience, did that kind of draw you out to do more education?
1: Oh, absolutely! I take very seriously the notion that once you have, you know, read the designer's manual, once you've studied this and worked on it, that you, understanding what we understand, we have an obligation to spread that knowledge in a positive way. And you know, we're living in some interesting times right now—challenging times—and. Uh, I feel that everybody has, has an obligation uh, to be part of their community. And, you know, it doesn't have to be through teaching children, but that just happens to be what, you know, the direction that this, this pulled me. But uh, but also, you know, I, I, I live in a, a very poor neighborhood. There's a halfway house uh, up the street for, for gentlemen who are coming out of prison. And, you know, sometimes I'll come home with a, you know, a huge bag of fruit from a friend who's, you know, got too many apples or pears or whatever on their tree. And, you know, I like to stop by and and give these guys, uh, you know, a small bag of apples or pears, and they're always so enthusiastic. And, you know, I just feel like it's really important to reach out to people, tell them that, you know, nature is all around us, that the resources are there, share with the community. Uh, and try and bring people together, especially right now when everybody seems to be you know, so set on finding what, what makes us different. You know, we're, we all eat. Everybody needs to eat, Republican or Democrat, you still need to eat, and it's better if you're eating healthy food. So it, I feel like it, you know, I really, really, really right now want to overcome differences, find things that we can connect on, and food is a, is a great way of doing that.
0: And that's what comes from my conversation with Sean Chamberlain about the work of David Fleming, is that they also talk a lot about that commonality of of human celebration, and it's even something that the anthropologist David Graeber touches on in his book, Debt, is that when we're in community with each other, we don't have that same kind of tit for tat business as usual, you know, if I help you, you have to help me kind of relationship. There's a lot more room for... Just celebratory interaction and joy and pleasure in just the fact that we're together in our community and the different ways that we can come together for holidays and different celebrations and carnivals and just to, well, as with a card game, to play. That's one of the places where I really like things like what you're developing is the way that we can come together and play some games that have no stakes that are nothing more than just the joy of doing it and in the process not only learn more about a particular subject because of play as education, but also to get to know other people because of the conversations that we're having around the table at the same time.
1: That's really important and that was something that I thought about, you know, just in terms of bringing people together in a sort of a a cooperative and, and competitive setting with these games. You know, you can play these cooperatively, you can play them competitively and some people like one better than the other, and for myself, I I wanted to create something that could that could be both. It, it was funny. I was talking to uh, or exchanging emails with Matt Powers, the the permaculture student, not too long ago, and uh, and I it's been a few years since I since I put the game out, and I was looking for sort of a fresh perspective because sometimes when you're looking at something for so long, you you kind of forget what you're looking at, and uh, and he said, you know, Carly you need to start talking about this game with just ordinary people, not just the, the whole permaculture crowd, and just you know, show it to them as a fun game because it's actually really fun. You know, I've been thinking about it after a while as, you know, hey, this is a way you teach kids. This is how you, you know, it's, it's good. It's instructional. It's, and you know, he's like, you know, it's actually really fun. You don't have to be into, into permaculture to enjoy it. And uh, I guess in that way it's kind of insidious. Um, it gets it gets our point across, but without without shouting it. And I think that's that's something that I've really I really wanted to be able to do is is to have to create something that people find fun. People can sit down and play. And there doesn't have to you know the they don't have to understand from day one that there's a that there's an important message behind it too but there yeah but there is uh, but it can still be played just as a fun uh, a fun game by anybody uh, regardless of whether or not they're gardeners
0: and i think that's one of the places where play as education really makes a big difference because you know just something as simple as playing uno with my daughter when she was younger what she learned about game theory and learning to count and numbers and things that i didn't necessarily have to explicitly teach her the way that games make some really complex and interesting ideas accessible um, in ways that we might not normally think of it. There's actually, as we're recording this, um, which will be a couple weeks before this interview is released at the end of October, I'll be heading off to a gaming convention and I'll be taking a couple of decks of your cards with me to hand out to a couple of folks who I know there to share. When I look at things like that, my friends who are running this gaming convention, which is called Save Against Fear, they're a 501c3 nonprofit that uses role playing games to help families recover from the trauma of childhood abuse. And they're using it as a way to personify, in some ways, through the story, these wounds that have occurred so that people can. Work on dealing with them so that they can talk through their problems and learn how to resolve conflict and interact with other people all through the experience of a game without having it feel like it's necessarily like a therapy session, that it's just people sitting around a table getting to know one another better. And now they're doing a lot of role playing games. So it's, you know, they might have several children or several families around the table where the monsters are representing different issues for each of those groups. And they're working together through it and then forming these kinds of bonds. But I even think just from my own childhood, which wasn't at all traumatic, all the good memories that I have and experiences of sitting down and playing cards with my grandmother and my parents or my cousins and things like that.
1: As I have the same memories. It's funny, I and I think some of the best games do mimic life in a way that, that uh, you know, in some ways, that it, it's it takes one feature of life and enhances it, and and you get to focus on it. Like you know, say Monopoly, which is obviously this you know game of capitalism, but it's also quite fun. Or the game of Life, which I remember playing as a kid. It's funny, I played it recently with my son, and they had they had blown up the values of things so much that it just became it became unreal for me. And, and there was something that, I don't know, it was a funny experience playing it uh, as an adult and seeing that they changed it a bit and feeling almost betrayed by, uh, by I don't know, Milton Bradley or whomever <laughs> created the game. But, um, but just those memories of, you know, sitting down with my grandmother and playing Yahtzee and learning math or playing Scrabble with my mom and and learning how to spell and, and increasing my vocabulary made a real impact on me. And I've always thought of games as not just fun, but also great learning experiences.
0: And now you get to tie those together in your Food Forest card game. Exactly.
1: <laughs> and it's funny when you put out a, when I put out a new, just a, a new instruction sheet for a, a different game you can play with a Food Forest card game, I often get, you know, people say, Oh, but can I do this? And and I always think it's really funny because you know it's just it's just me in my dining room, you know, making up this game and I and I put it out and suddenly it's law, you know, for this this is this is the rules, this is the rules, how you play. I really, really, really want people to sort of take it on themselves to say, I've got this toolkit. You know, the Food Force deck is a toolkit. And it can be used to create games that anybody brainstorms. And if they if they look at one of my games and say, "Well, that doesn't work all that well for me," well, you know, change it. You make a new rule. Write it at the bottom of the page, and and play it that way with your friends. There's you know, there's no uh, group of, of lawyers who are going to sit down and say, "This is this is you're playing this game the wrong way." I really want people to be able to uh, to move forward with this. Uh, it would be my dream if somebody actually started sending me games back, and I had a couple of people um, send game suggestions. But I, boy, I, I would love it uh, if somebody uh, if somebody took it on themselves to tell me and tell the community how they were using the cards and that they'd come up with a few different games that I'd never thought of.
0: When I think of what you mentioned with Monopoly, I ran across an article not too long ago about how. Probably no one actually plays Monopoly as written because, you know, we all have house rules and different ways that we play. And the people who wrote the article actually went through and played the game exactly as the rules were written and were blown away by all the things that they had never done or were surprised at how the actual rules were laid out. And there's a card game that I used to play as a child with my grandmother called Hand and Foot which is like a version of Canasta. And in playing that, I had heard once that, you know, no two games of that are the same because every table plays it differently. And one day dropping off my stepdaughter at Girl Scout camp, her mother and I were coming back and we stopped in this little country store. And I heard someone say, okay, I'm out. I'll go ahead and pick up my foot. And I realized what game they were playing. And as I heard them playing, it sounded nothing like what I had known. And I see something like what you're doing is having, especially because of how much information is there and the different ways that you can use the cards, all these permutations and different ways to develop games and ideas, not only for just fun interaction, say, with children or one's family, but I also look at them as a permaculture teacher of the ways that I could pull these into a classroom and be able to, one of my favorite design games as an instructor to have a class do is design island which is where you give each of your groups a large piece of paper and have them draw an island and then you give every student a couple of cards where they put down an element that's going to go on their island and then the teachers put some interesting things on some cards and then you kind of shuffle things up and deal them out into each group and then have them design an island using the principles and ideas of permaculture Whereas here, I think if I were to use your cards, I would divide the cards into stacks for the different groups and then have them start trading between one another to do a little bit of bartering to get the cards that they need for their design.
1: You know, what I would also suggest for anybody who wanted to do that, that exercise, that game, is there, there's a PDF version of this on the website and just to, you know a little insider secret if you're if you're a teacher and you you know the the cards i i I know are not are not super cheap i i have them produced locally and it's you know it's an expensive way of going about it but the pdf the the self-printed pdf you can print it a few times and you could have more you know more than one deck in that classroom so the cards could be spread they don't have to be spread quite so thinly if you're willing to cut them out yourself on a on a paper cutter it's less expensive uh, I've had a lot of teachers use that as an option because it's only 10 bucks to get the the pdf version and you print it up for your you know you print five ten decks off of that the only thing that's limiting you is the fact that it's it's a pain to uh, to cut them out but that would be an interesting way to to use that so you're not just limited by the you know 60 odd
0: cards that you've got in the deck and if people want to find that PDF, I know that I've got and been using your plant22.com URL, but the full site is what foodforestcardgame.com.
1: Foodforestcardgame.com is the uh, is the full website. I have a, a few different few different URLs that will that will get you there. The plant 22 notion. The reason that I have that is because I also plant trees for every deck that's sold. It's just kind of uh, help to replenish the resources that we're using. I try to plant as many as possible for every deck sold. So it generally comes out to about a 10% donation off of the total amount sold to, uh, to reforestation efforts. My goal was to plant 22 trees for every deck sold. Sometimes I don't quite make that, uh, that goal, but we've had thousands of trees planted. That carbon offset the whole, the whole process.
0: And a nice way to give back for the work that you're doing through this process.
1: One of the organizations, uh, the Eden Reforestation Projects, works in Haiti planting food trees in a reforestation effort. I, I won't say that they are you know, strictly permaculture in their efforts, but they're very, very thoughtful and, um, and they're thinking regeneratively as they are working on reforesting Haiti, which is, as we all know, a, a country that is in dire need of both food and forests. So it's, it's sort of a nice, a nice connection. It's funny, too, because one of the things that that led me to this project was my interest not just in permaculture, but also in reforestation. I feel like we're at a point now where we have cut down too many trees. And as much as it's important for us to work on our emissions, it's also important to work on the carbon sinks that that, uh, are currently and have been destroyed. And so I really, really, really feel strongly about reforestation. And so when I started playing this game with the kids in the classroom, I was also sort of in parallel thinking, what could I do to, to earn more money to send to reforestation projects? because I just feel like it's so important. And I've been giving to reforestation projects, but I thought, you know, what, what can I do to increase awareness? And it's funny that the two didn't immediately coincide in my mind. And then suddenly I thought, well, geez, I could actually make these into, into a product. I could use that as a, a means of raising money for reforestation. And, you know, it was, it was a really nice match. Well, and it's
0: one of the things that I think is interesting about that reforestation is there's a book by Bruce Babbitt, He was the governor of Arizona, so if my memory is correct, he was a secretary of the Interior or something like that under President Clinton. Wrote this great book about a decade ago called Cities in the Wilderness, which was this big, broad land use idea. And even though it has to deal with a lot of things, one of the things that I'm reminded of as a permaculture practitioner, and especially with Toby Hemingway's Permaculture City, is that now more than fifty percent of people live in cities. And so, you know, I don't see that trend reversing anytime soon. And we could get into a a huge conversation about land access and everything else. But in the time being in the space that we have, there's a lot of work that we as city dwellers or or town dwellers can do to recreate the wilderness that's no longer being used in the same way by humanity. Absolutely.
1: I commit a small portion of my small yard to just absolute wilderness, things growing that I can't even always identify. I love having that piece of wilderness, even in a small yard. And I think it's so important. People walk by and they see what my yard looks like with, uh, you know, you have beech plums growing, you've got uh, honeyberries, you've got holly, you've got roses, you've got a lot of different small trees that are sort of still not producing, but, um, and then you've got cherry trees, and this is all in the space of about 40 to 50 feet of sidewalk that, you know, in a, in a very small section of my front yard, and they just, they turn around and they see uh, other houses that are, that have turned everything into hardscaping and parking lots and et cetera, and, and yet you've got this, this crazy guy over here uh, with his little patch of lawn who's who's got butterflies and uh, you know and grasshoppers i'm constantly amazed at the, the wildlife that shows up in the midst of this primarily hardscaped area when you just give it a chance and you know and then exposing people to that and incorporating food into that you know when i think about the the pressures that we put on the environment in food production and just our needs and then transportation of this food to the cities. When people ask me, what can I do really? What can I really do to make a difference? I think there's a, a couple of really important things. First, stop putting organic waste into the waste stream. And you don't need much space to do that. You Just just some worm bins or a small compost container will will handle a whole lot of waste that will otherwise turn into methane and leachate in your landfill. And the second is produce food where you are so that there is no truck that needs to bring it to you, there is no fertilizer or pesticide that needs to go on it, and you're cutting back with every, every piece of fruit that you're producing, you're cutting back on transportation and fertilizer and you know, all of the things that, that will otherwise be polluting the world. And if you can do that in a city, you can make a really big difference in a very small space.
0: And I think about when I was younger and got my first book on Earth Day, I think I was in the fourth grade, which is funny because that's where my nine-year-old daughter is now. And it was all about all these individual changes we could make. And then as I got older, it was this conversation about how individual choices won't make a difference. And at the end of the day, I think that we have to do all of it. And if we can be taking those resources and using them where we are, that changes that waste stream and even if it doesn't necessarily make a big difference in the grand scheme of greenhouse gases released or something like that there are other things that we can learn from that about where our waste does go what happens as it breaks down and how we can use it and just it helps us to inhabit the space where we are a little bit more deeply and get to know our interaction with all of those resources and people and plants and food and everything that it is that we need to live
1: yeah you know and i think one of the interesting and important things about people is you have to make these things interesting and fun otherwise you know if people tell you that that they have to that they feel like they have to do it because it's just medicine they're taking you know i can't drive a big car because of the environment I have to drive this little car, but I really want to be driving a big car. Or, you know, oh gosh, I've got to eat all these vegetables. I'm not supposed to be eating processed food, but boy, I really love processed food. You've got to make food delicious. You have to make gardening fun, which I, I find it's fun just, you know, because I enjoy it. But you know, with the kids that I'm working with, they like games. And playing games with them helps to make it fun. I also run a group group called Permaculture Providence, which I'm in the process of trying to get more people to help run, it's our local permaculture chapter here in Providence, Rhode Island. And the funny thing about it is, even all of these great-intentioned people, in order to get them together, I need to make the meetups fun. I can't just have, hey, we're going to have an educational meetup. We're going to read this book, and we're going to be better people for it. I have to, you know, I have to say, hey, we're going to have food, and uh, we're going to have a potluck supper, and. Nothing gets people together better than a potluck supper or the, the idea of some fun way of getting together, like over games or, or that kind of thing. And, it, you know, it's, it's important, and this is what I've been striving for with the game, is to make the process fun for people who might not otherwise have been attracted to the notion. And it seems to be, it seems to be working, but you've got to be strategic and fun.
0: Well, and I think about, as you say, you know, we're going to read this book and and learn something to be better people. It's why, you know, David Holmgren's first principle as presented is observe and interact, that it's not just about taking a class or a workshop or spending time in nature. It's about doing something. I'd love to go down this road with you further, but I did want to talk with you today about your card game. And so, I was just wondering, you know, you mentioned that sometimes people send you some suggestions. You're, you know, working at your table to create new games. Can you tell us more about that process of finding ways to use the cards in different ways, as well as how some folks could get involved if they play with a deck and want to
1: add to the material? Absolutely. I find there's really two ways of going about creating a game. The way that I started doing, you know, thinking about games was... I would think about something that you would, that some process that you would engage in, whether it was a design process or you know designing your uh, your backyard food forest, or well, I mean that was that was a big part a uh, big part of it. Or but just or just designing a a, a guild for um, for companion planting, and I would then try and take that and mimic it in the card games, and I found that that was that was a way to create some really interesting and involved games. And that's all well and good. And some of them are, are a lot of fun to play. But sometimes I come at it from the other angle that I that I like to come at it from. It. And that is, I think about the games that I enjoyed playing with a standard deck of cards, like, say, Crazy Eights. And then I think, how could I take the cards and use them with some of the principles expressed on the cards to play a similar kind of game and I find that that's really a quick way of sort of ex- expanding the game repertoire take go fish for example' it's, it's very in- easy to think of different ways in which you could use the cards for a, a go fish style game or even you know even a uh, poker style games uh, where you're looking at you know in, in poker you're looking at Um, and straights, and flushes, and pairs, and that kind of thing, you know, and seeing, well, gee, what is it, what, how do you reflect a a straight, or a flush, or a pair, within the, uh, the limitations of the cards, but also within the, the sort of the permaculture concepts, too, and, and I think if you look at them, you find that you can do that with, if you thought about, say, a straight, in terms of providing you know putting together a certain number of levels of a forest like you had to have the canopy and then the sub canopy and then the the bushes and the lower bacius and the ground cover cetera. you know and that that in a sense could be your straight and then you know maybe you could have uh pears or or flushes and you just have to think about how these things could be combined with the cards to then turn into a game. And so, so like I said, there's two different ways of looking at it. Either take a game that already exists and retrofit it, or take a concept that exists in permaculture and think, how can I game that? So those are the two processes that I use. The, the other process, of course, is getting suggestions from, from really bright people out there and then trying to work with those. One of the great places that I've found to get them is threads at, at permies.com, I've got a, a Food Force card game thread where people can come in and see sort of the ideas that I've been working on lately, comment on them and throw in their two cents and, and get it out to the community really quickly, sort of like a communal blog about the game, um, which is sort of a neat resource to go to if you're, if you're looking for ideas that aren't fully necessarily fully formed, um, but, you know, jumping off points. And if you
0: can get me a link to that, I'll gladly share that in the show notes so people can easily find it.
1: Absolutely. I will, I will do so. I'll send you a few different links at the end. Well, I really appreciate, Carl, everything
0: that you've shared with us today because I've had fun playing the game. As I say, some of the ones that you sent along as different ways to use this, as well as just kind of flipping through the cards and checking them out. They're nice, large, almost like a, a coaster size of card with some fun information on them and some things that i don't necessarily always think about when i'm shuffling through something i you know all those times that i've done my own needs and yields analysis of something and here you have some of those broken down pretty straightforward for some very common uh plants and other things that we might include but as i always like to end an interview do you have any final thoughts for the listeners before we draw this to a close
1: uh, sure, there is yeah, there's one uh, sort of funny uh, and interesting thing that, uh, that I wanted to mention. Over the last several years, I've had a few offers from people who wanted to translate um, the cards into different languages. And it's an expensive process to get cards printed from translations. But what I have been able to offer people is if they will translate them for me, then I can put it into the PDF format very easily. And sometimes for overseas folks, it's actually easier to get the PDFs. It's less expensive. You don't have to pay for expensive shipping. And uh, the, the one person who has completely followed through on that happens to be Dutch. And she has, uh, she's created this Dutch translation that I am in the process of putting onto the cards and will be offering hopefully within the next couple of months um, on the website. So uh, if, if there's anybody listening here from Holland, uh, they will be able to share those with their classrooms hopefully pretty soon, at least in the PDF format. And I, I really would encourage the Spanish speakers or uh, Italian speakers, if they want to have this uh, for their own classrooms, French speakers, uh, Germans, it would be great if somebody would just go through this process and translate it, and then I would be happy to, uh, to put it into that PDF format and, uh, and give give people full credit for, for their efforts on the website.
0: As always with this, I know one of the concerns is that so much of the material for permaculture is mostly in English, and anyone who would be interested in doing this kind of work with you, I know I've had offers in the past to transcribe some episodes of the show into other languages that we really do need this kind of help because our community continues to grow, yet at the same time the folks who are readily and actively involved creating new materials and things, there's only, you know, a handful of us who are regularly doing this. So any help that the community can give would be greatly appreciated.
1: Absolutely. I really appreciate this opportunity, Scott. It's a nice way to sort of lead in toward the, you know, the beginning of the, or the middle of the first semester of school for a lot of kids and also heading toward holiday season where people, people are looking for what's the perfect gift for the permian on my list? So it's a terrific opportunity to be able to share this game and I had a great conversation with you, Scott. I really I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for taking the time to join me for it, Carl. I really appreciate it and look forward to seeing what comes from you and the Food Forest card game in the future.
1: Terrific. Thanks a lot.
0: And that was Carl Treen. You can find out more about him and his games at foodforestcardgame.com. If you want to look further into the idea of games for education and how we can teach with them, you'll find copious notes in the resource section for this episode. I include not only what Carl and I talked about, but also those from the conversation that follows in a few moments with Jason Gadesky. And, as I don't want to use just the anecdotes Carl and I shared about how games changed our own lives, I also include some links to organizations formally using and researching the impacts of play, including Hawk Robinson at RPG Research, Dr. Sarah Lynn Bowman, who wrote her PhD thesis, on the way that we create social connections through games, and the Bodana Group, who I mentioned while talking with Carl, That uses games with families and children. I have a few more thoughts on this, but want to get to the conversation with Jason. So let's go ahead and get to that, and I'll wrap up everything else going through my head after that. So Jason, while we're here at Save Against Fear, and you're running some demos of the fifth world, because of your experience teaching people about how life could be through games and play, I was wondering if you might speak a bit about this idea of education through play.
2: Well, I think one thing is that most people, when they start talking about education through play, fall into a very common pitfall of trying to make, just plaster over something that's educational on top of a game. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really work because, you know, we, we see how effective games can be, and that's because they're fun. And if you forget to make it fun, because you're just having it go through your lesson plan then it fails to be a game and so it then fails to be an educational game that's the thing if you want to do an educational game it has to be a game first and then can be an educational in addition to it personally my my feeling is that where it becomes really effective is more communicating a feeling like a game can give you a model of the world Right? The rules of the game are an idea of how the world works. Uh, Monopoly started off like that. Like There were actually two versions of Monopoly, and one was supposed to be this horrible grind where somebody won in the first round, but it would take four hours of grinding your friends into dust to actually see that that all play out, and it was supposed to you were supposed to see how terrible it was. Whereas there was this other one where everybody cooperated, and it was great, and, and everybody got what they wanted. That one didn't succeed because it was kind of boring, because everybody got along and cooperated. <laughs> and there's ways to do cooperative games that are fun, but you, you have to be struggling against something, uh, and this wasn't struggling against anything. The cutthroat capitalist version that was supposed to show how terrible capitalism is became Monopoly. And is now, like, the, the standard-bearer of games that people who like games don't like. And it kind of makes sense. Like, it was supposed to show how what a grinding, terrible experience living in capitalism is. And it succeeded in giving you a grinding, terrible experience. But then your game is grinding and terrible. Uh, <laughs> and that becomes an inescapable problem. But if you, if you have, a, like, a model of the world, especially if there's an intrinsic balance to be struck... Like, look at how you think the world should work, and what is the thing that's still difficult in that world. Because there's gonna be something that's still difficult, some balance that you need to maintain, two things that are in tension, and that's what you want to make your game about. And because that builds a tension into the game, there's a question that needs to be answered, and there's no correct answer to it. And that means every time you play, you can try a different way. The other thing is that if you want to communicate a feeling, just focus on that emotional core. And what is that? So, like, one of the things that I concentrated on with with the fifth world, like, a lot of role-playing games will use dice. And when you have dice in your hand and you roll them, the question is, can I do well enough? And so it's great for things like overcoming an obstacle because there's this question, the tension is from that question of, can I overcome this obstacle? And that's the same emotional question that you have when you roll dice. In the fifth world, I use uh, decks of cards because in the fifth world, the emotional core I want to get to is exploring both physical space and exploring emotional and social space and cards have that same question what is the next card is already determined it's sitting there but you don't know what it is and that's the same emotional core as uh, exploration it's already there it's over the next horizon you just haven't seen it yet
0: In looking for that kind of emotional core intention in the fifth world, what are you trying to teach people explicitly through playing your game? Because I've had some experiences with this (laughs) and just want to kind of see if there's an alignment between what I've encountered in playing with you and what you were trying to accomplish with it.
2: Yeah, uh, well, with the fifth world specifically, I am of the opinion that we are all natural animists and that it actually takes some training to get us to be anything but animists. But that means that deep down there's still that animist human being that can come out. And uh, a lot of what I wanted to do with the game was to draw that out. And so with the cards and that discovery, there's these questions that build on each other. I was kind of drawn by some things that Calvin Luther Martin wrote in The Way of the Human Being, about how in the beginning we have every potential. Everything is possible. But every time we discover something, every time we learn something, every time we do something, it constrains a little bit more. And finally, it collapses into one thing and not the other. But if you do that too quickly, you miss a lot of possibilities. And so uh, a lot of the gameplay in The Fifth World is focused on constraining the possibilities and finding out what the story is, but making sure that you don't do it too quickly and leaving the space open for for the story to live. And in that space, you end up with a lot of abstract things that come into intersection with each other. The questions will allow intersections that you don't expect. So you might just kind of casting about thinking about who you're going to encounter. I was just running a demo where because of the way who is a person is set up, he selected encountering the history of a place. And so Julie played the history of that place. And so she saw that the history of the place had mental needs. So she took it as the history of that place had a need to be understood in context and to really for people to understand what it meant. And so you get a lot of intersections like that, from leaving that space open and not rushing too fast to fill it in.
0: When it comes to using games as a tool for learning, Mm -hmm. I mean, you're working on a very kind of a deep level, understanding for people to actually give them an experience at the tabletop with a game that they might not encounter elsewhere unless they're seeking out something like that by actually Mm -hmm. going into the wilderness and, if you will, giving up a part of their civilized self to rewild a little and look for that other than human. When it comes to games as a whole, is there any place or space that you feel that we can't use them to teach something? Or do you see them, if they're well-designed and well-developed, that we can really use them for any human endeavor? Uh, I guess practical skills would be hard to teach outside of a LARP. I'm just thinking about, you know, I, I I guess I couldn't teach underwater welding with a role-playing game,
2: but... <laughs> uh, I, 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 what is it? Um, Trackers Northwest do a pretty good job of that. They run a bunch of camps that, frankly, seem to me like they blur the line between immersion, primitive skills camp, and ongoing LARP. I think they are probably exploring the space of how do you teach underwater welding, or how do you teach primitive skills, you know, in, in a game. So those, those are, are a little bit harder, but I think most things... Yeah, just like that, it, it's kind of a design question. They all have different ways that you would approach the design. History trivia is hard to make a fun game. That's one of the most common ones that people go to of how to teach with a game, and it's also like one of the hardest ones. But I think that ultimately if you sit down, if you keep in mind that it has to be a game first, it has, and so you have to look for what the tension is and what, what the balance is. What is it that players are doing, right? put that front and center and make sure that it addresses what you want to teach. There should be a way to design your way out of just about anything.
0: And when it comes to game design in the fifth world, I know that you've studied permaculture as well as rewilding a lot of primitive skills. Mm-hmm. Did you apply the ideas of permaculture in any way when you were putting together the fifth world as part of your design process?
2: Not in a direct like checking off the 12 principles or anything like that. Uh, although after the fact, I went back and saw a few that, that and, and tried to uh, map how they would match up. In designing it, I don't know. I think it was in the. I think it was in my head, but I don't. I can't really think of specific ways of like. So much of permaculture training focuses on how you use permaculture training for growing vegetables, and this is not growing vegetables. Like there are some parts where I was definitely thinking of rules like guilds and how they interact with each other. That, uh, but that. You could just say that that's part of game design. Like, it's all about the interaction, so how do you ever not design guilds? We do have modules that, bundles, what we call them, that you can unlock in play. And those I have that's looked at more like guilds and how they click into the rest of your growing garden of interacting roles.
0: And that's for play within the fifth world that people yeah. can start with kind of the base game and then build these bundles that expand their gameplay. Exactly. If there's anybody who's interested in learning more about games and game design, are there any resources that you would point people to? I mean, I know for me being a long-time gamer, I've played so many games, mm-hmm. that it's pretty easy to, to grab a game, find some rules and start working with things, mm-hmm. or knowing who some of the authors are, you know, mm-hmm. who talk about ideas uh, like, a narrative versus a mm-hmm. simulationist game and things like that. But for somebody who's just getting started, maybe a parent or a teacher who would like to explore this further, mm-hmm. is there anything that comes
2: to mind? Anything that uh, Vincent Baker has written is great if you're in uh, the role-playing game space. Bree Sheldon runs a series of interviews with game designers that's often very insightful. uh, There's some really great stuff that have come from those interviews. I think the biggest thing is to go out and play a bunch of games. I see a lot of game designers who really seem constrained by the fact that they've only played a certain set of games, and they can't even imagine that there would be games outside of that set and that really constrains your options as a designer if that's the only thing you can conceive of as a game. So there's a there's a huge variety of games out there. Like, being in role-playing games, most people know Dungeons and & Dragons, and there's this whole set of very closely related, design-wise, games around D&D. I would say 90 90- Percent or more of the diversity in role-playing games is represented by indie role-playing games because they are so over the map. Whereas most of the mainstream games stay very closely bunched and and clustered around D and D and don't really vary much from its mechanics. Uh, Same goes with board games. We're we're living in a golden age of uh, board games. Go get a bunch of Euro games, some of the classics and some of the new ones that are out. You know, find your local gaming club and, and see what the hardcore board game geeks are raving about because. Uh, they're going to be off there on on the bleeding edge. Pandemic Season 2 is coming out soon. You know, if you haven't played a Legacy game, get thee to a Legacy game. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and I also think that, you know, we have for books for children and young adults, we have things like the Newbery... Or the Caldecott winners Mm -hmm. that people can look for. And among the gaming space, there are all kinds of awards that give you an idea of what some of the better games are. There are some of the The, the select games. The
2: Spiel des Jahres uh, is handed out mostly to Germans. Uh, But there's a reason it's mostly Germans. Uh, You should go play those games and you'll find out.
0: (laughs) And as I always like to do with these, even though we've only had a short conversation today, I don't want to keep you away from your demos, uh, as I see there are some people at your table, but do you have any final thoughts for folks who are interested in this idea of gaming, education, and learning?
2: I think that it's great, but it's also easy to get wrong. And most of the people I see who try to jump into the space get it really, really wrong. Remember that it has to be fun first. Remember why you want to do a game in education, because it's fun and it reaches people. Well, if it's not fun, it's not going to reach people. So make sure that first and foremost, it's a fun game. And if it has a message that's intrinsic to the rules, the fun is what's going to carry it. The fun is going to be your evangelist.
0: And that was Jason gadeski of The Fifth World. More about that game at thefifthworld.com. From what you heard during these two conversations, games play a big role in my life. Were it not for permaculture, holistic systems, and the time that goes into creating the show, I'd probably spend my time designing games, as gaming continues as one of my primary hobbies. And it's that lifelong interest that led me to explore the ideas that I did today, first with Carl and then with Jason, as I see that games can be useful in our classroom and in our community. In particular, the social atmosphere that games create, where we can sit down and work with one another in a cooperative game or compete in a friendly way, with no real stakes involved. Which allows us to have interactions that provide a slow and small solution to get to know others and foster the long-term relationships necessary to build our tribe, or create a community of others interested in the same kinds of activities. Though those people who we invite to our table to play games with us may not engage in permaculture directly, we need everyone to join us so that we can create the social, cultural, and And political change to create the world that we want to live in. Though certainly one of us can make a huge difference. Together, we increase our diversity and, with that, the number of connections and possibilities. By playing a game, one can become many. If there's any way I can help you find an interesting game for your classroom, a game night, or a party, let me know. Also, if you have any feedback on this two-guest single-subject episode, I'd love to hear it. Did you find the addition of Jason's voice helpful in understanding Carl's approach with games, education, and using them to teach? Whatever your thoughts, you can leave a comment in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com or get in touch with me directly. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, call 717-827-6266, or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast. P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. If you do have a few minutes to leave a comment or send me a message, could you take another minute or two and also leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you find this show? That helps people find out if the Permaculture Podcast is a good fit for them and helps to continue to grow the show. From here, for Patreon supporters, Check your Patreon feed at patreon.com permaculturepodcast on Wednesday, November 1st, as I'm giving away a deck of Food Forest card game cards to a supporter. While there, you'll also find another giveaway that's still active for a copy of Integrated Forest Gardening, the Complete Guide to Polycultures and Plant Guilds in Permaculture Systems by Wayne Wiseman, Daniel Halsey, and Bryce Ruddock. All Patreon supporters are eligible for the Food Forest card game giveaway, so when you see that go live, make sure you leave a comment and let me know if you're interested. The next interview, out ad-free on November 7th for Patreon supporters, and then via the website iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts on November 10th, is Kai Sawyer. He joins me to talk about permaculture in Japan and how he navigates living in the gift economy. Until we meet again, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself and playing games with your community.